This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Yeah, I can't type with my left thumb, so I'm very impressed whenever I see that. Yeah. What what do you do? I just do the one finger. Yeah. What? Yeah. Jeez. Wait a minute. That is why can't you use your left thumb? I don't know. It's like a weird shake I have. I don't know. Oh. Just coordination. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with NewsRadio 600 Coco. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by Andy Keats. He's the managing editor for special projects and investigations here at Voice of San Diego. He's also an excellent sort of two-thumb typist on this phone. Hello, Andy. Hey, Scott. Thanks for that introduction. Managing editor for Daily News, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. I'm caffeinated. Up. Good, Sorry. let's go. <laughs> interrupted you. I'm super caffeinated. <laughs> let's go. Coming up on the show this week, another signature gathering effort has gone down, almost fully down. Attacks for parks and libraries is thus almost dead. The city clerk and registrar say the effort to raise a parcel tax to fund programming and some capital needs at libraries and parks has come up short. We'll explain why we keep doing this, and what the campaign leader said about what happened. We've also got some updates on stories we've been following. And finally, a county supervisor, Tara Lawson-Reamer, talked to Andrea Lopez Villafania here about homelessness, behavioral health, housing, and how she thinks the Board of Supervisors can tackle those issues. That's all coming up. Stay with us. We're going to get into all of that, but first, this week marks the 18th anniversary of Voice of San Diego's launch in the public. 2005, February 9th, this uh, thing comes online and people dealt with it. It was it was quite a day. Um, if Voice were a person, could smoke cigarettes by now, vote, buy lottery tickets. It's getting It's getting up there. Uh, but we will keep sticking with what we do. Uh, we do investigative journalism. And we also have a new mission. 
so we have uh, always gone with this sort of elaborate two-part mission, right? This mission mm-hmm. statement that we bring out. On the one hand, it said we do uh, groundbreaking investigative journalism. Mm-hmm. And on the other, we provide the information that people need to be uh, advocates for social progress and good government. Uh, we decided that was quite long. Mission statements are always best, just a few words, get something across. And uh, maybe we could try to you know, do that. We ended up having a great conversation with the board and staff and other stakeholders and got into this one simple version. It is investigative journalism for a better San Diego. Bada bing, bada boom. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, no, we actually should. Do we, we have should. that as a t-shirt? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> Our t-shirt game has always been lacking. It's <laughs> been bad. Yeah. If we got some good merch, people would go. People As would go Andy excited. wears a bright orange shirt. <laughs> yeah, it's comfy. It's not in his color palette. <laughs> uh, devastated over yeah. here. He's going to cry tonight. Uh, so we understand one of your first questions after that might be, well, what's a better San Diego? Well, you can check out actually what we have to say about that because we have I think we were the first uh, news organization of this type to come up with something like this. Basically, it's a long-standing effort we've done to um, try and identify like what we're what we're doing here, like what's the point, right? Where where are we coming from? And I've always felt that journalists have not been entirely honest with people with people when they talk about. Yeah, they always have a, the little back door there where it's like when they're pushed. In any to any level of discomfort about why they did a story or why they were compelled to write a story, that they're just putting it out there. Yeah, as if they happened upon it at random. Yeah. So they've the objectivity, right? I'm an objective journalist, or that that piece of journalism is very objective. That's always been like a very uh, uh, high ideal. And in fact, the most praise we get often when people are excited about some stories we've done is that it was a very objective story. And so, if you think about objectivity, it's a little bit hard because we're not a mere we're not a perfect like reflection of what is happening. We we go about trying to decide what to do, what mm-hmm. stories to do, what to care about, what to get fired up about. You've heard us on the show care about things and and care about other things less. Those are subjective decisions. We all agree, I think, on this uh, table mm-hmm. that murder is bad. Mm-hmm. I would bet that the objective journalists at KPBS would think that murder, in most cases, is bad. <laughs> and that uh like stealing money from like a nonprofit is bad, right? Mm-hmm. They would they would agree that you know uh, dumping sewage into uh a school playground is bad. Something like that, right? People would be okay with that. Yeah. All we wanted to do several years ago is come out with like okay, well what what values do we carry into these decisions? Because there's obviously some things we're not going to have, you know, yes or no's about. We're not going to have a balanced uh, story about whether murder's good or not. Some people say murder's good. Some people say murder's bad. You know, I always thought that it was actually sort of, it, it was probably not a coincidence that we did this when others hadn't. And I think it's because of our size. I think when you're smaller, it becomes much easier to ask and harder to explain why you did one thing versus another. Yeah. 
a, a large newspaper, which you know there are fewer and fewer of them every day, but at least has the outward appearance of covering everything or close to everything, right? It, it, it's it's um, much less uh, stark when you see a story and you're like, why did they write that? You know, at the at the n- 1995 version of the Baltimore Sun, which covered basically everything of it that had crossed any sort of threshold of significance. When we would, were doing like five, seven stories a week, it becomes much easier to be like, help me understand why you did this story as opposed to the dozens and dozens of other stories out there. And so I think as a natural follow-up for that, it became essential to try to put pen to paper about how we make those decisions. Yeah, just deciding to cover something is itself a subjective decision. So mm-hmm. what what are you carrying into that? And so we came up several years ago with a What We Stand For document, had nine principles of values that we carried into our reporting. If somebody said, what's your bias, what's your agenda? We could point to that and say, well, that's it. That's what we've all agreed to. Uh, anything else is somebody else freelancing, but that's not it. And that also helps us like identify the big problem, right? Mm-hmm. So if we if we go at something that's like if a road's falling apart, we have a value that like infrastructure is important, it needs to be strong. If a school is failing to serve its its students or having a bad experience there or it's unsafe, like we can stand on a principle that says like you should have a high quality education. Even if a reporter is kind of f- feeling like they don't have their bearings, and they're like, how do I, what am I supposed to do? What do, what, how do I, how do I get back on the right path? Right. They could pull it up and say, all right, what is it that we that we're supposed to focus on? Here? Right. So that has been updated as well. So when you say investigative journalism for a better San Diego, what's a better San Diego? Well, got the uh, what we stand for document. You can check it out at vosd.org/values. Uh, and I think it's it's good because we can still be fair and and objective about the solutions mm-hmm. that people have for certain problems. If a road's falling apart, well, maybe we should have a hyperloop instead. Uh, or maybe we should have, you know, if people aren't responding to uh, medical emergencies fast, maybe it's a firefighter that needs to do it, or maybe it's an ambulance or a paramedic working out of a storefront. Those are things. You've always loved that explanation. It's a very simple one to yeah. go with. So, uh, Lopez, uh, does it give you uh, peace? Are you feeling good about it? Yeah, I'm feeling super good about it. I say we throw it on a bunch of shirts and I'm ready to the ship. Whole, the whole What We Stand For document? Uh, no. That, would <laughs> that be, might actually be kind of cool. That would be crazy. You could t-shirt. put it on a tote or the back of a shirt, maybe. Yeah, back of the shirt. I have back a back of shirt, shirt yeah. that has the whole First Amendment oh, on the back. Oh, that would be cool. I've always enjoyed it. Yeah. Meg, get to it. All right. <laughs> Waiting in line at a roller coaster, some person behind you could read it. If you support that <laughs> and mission. like basically only in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> or if they're waiting for their latte and you're yeah. just standing there. There's probably not enough time. Yeah, there's like pickup now. Yeah. In mobile orders. It's mostly roller coasters, I think. You can support that mission and all of the rest of the work we do here uh, at VOSD.org slash pod people. Reference the pod and we'll remember you and, and highlight that. VOSD.org slash pod people. If you want the What We Stand For document, get that at VOSD.org slash values. That's VOSD.org slash values. And if you do support us, give $18, maybe. $1,800 we got today from a longtime supporter. $18 for 18 years of nonprofit journalism with a purpose. We appreciate everybody out there. There are a few updates to stories we've been following. A few weeks ago, we had a conversation about high-tech high. This is the, I think, best-known 
network of charter schools in San Diego, innovative project-based learning approach. There's been documentaries about it, uh, prestigious for a long time. We uh, have been following very closely the effort of educators there to unionize, and they did unionize, but then they've been fighting with management for quite some time about a contract. Our Jacob McQuinney uh, reported this week that they have agreed to a contract and they kind of came to an interesting deal about the most important part of the the impasse, which was what it takes to fire a teacher. And so in they came they, the administration wanted a three-year probationary period where it was, it was easier to let go of a teacher who wasn't performing well. The union wanted a, an independent group to decide on an appeal of a firing. And uh, they both got what they wanted out of that. So the, uh, the union got its, its independent group, but the management got its three-year period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so to, just to put that in context for anybody who doesn't have chapter and verse on the union uh, hiring and firing situation at San Diego Unified School District and other public schools in the state, basically most teachers have a two-year probationary period right? Mm -hmm. Um, But since layoff notices need to go out in March, it ends up being more like a year and a half or so of when a brand new teacher could actually be displaced from a school. Yeah. You have to act very quickly, in other words, if you see somebody who's not fit for the role. Right. Otherwise, it takes a very long and very rare process to uh, to let them go yeah. a long and time consuming enough process that it basically doesn't happen right um and then when those uh firings among traditional public schools are appealed they appeal to a state body mm-hmm. um it goes through the courts it yeah. goes to the courts eventually um so this is is different than that it's three years instead of two and there is an appeal to a, a separate independent board, but not the same state system or potential courts. Which is uh, interesting because it is it is the same union as the right. San Diego right. Unified School District Union, San Diego Education Association is representing. So you have to wonder if we've gotten over the charters versus traditional schools, union versus non-union war, will these which does seem preemptive that we've gotten over no that. no i know but i mean yeah. i'm just saying like obviously this that's not the case here because they're unionized yeah sure yeah and so uh if if you've gotten past that could there be as charters were set in motion to be as sort of factories for experimentation of different ways could there be experimentation in how these relationships <laughs> yeah, work? in the union contracts themselves or yeah. or or is it just going to be the way it or is it just going to be because so high tech high is certainly among the most notable of the charter school systems here in San Diego County. But some of the other most notable ones have been in the same stream here. Price and uh, Gompers, um, both as well. So it's like, it's not an isolated situation. There is some, some, you know, old rule of journalism. You need three for a trend story. We got three. Yeah, so Jacob uh, has been tracking that story for a while. Yeah, he spent time with them as they were, you know, counting votes. And he's been watching this as they've gone through like 
different points in their negotiations, frustrations, right? Um, When they reached a point where they felt like nothing was really going to happen, they weren't going to get their way. Um, But so he was with them when they counted up the votes and um, he describes a lot of excitement. They had a big cake there. Yeah. Um, They didn't know if it was going to be a sad cake or a happy cake. Happy cake. cake. (laughs) I remember this had been a dark time for high tech high. Like it was again, it was the top of the, Mm-hmm. The the charter school mountain for a long time, uh, Obama highlighted it as a as a school of success, and then um, it got hit really hard with COVID. I think that's a lesser told story, by the way. During COVID, just how much trouble charter schools had to open again. They were very responsive to their community, and a lot of their community members didn't want to see it open. And well, and and that's sort of an interesting part because it's it, it's. One of the issues with charter schools has been like they're this proxy in uh, like a very partisan fight over education. Uh, like conservatives view them as as a tool to potentially start breaking down the public school system or or certainly that was a characterization. And liberals often opposed them as something that would undermine the public school system. Um, and yet, like at a place like high tech high, most of the parents were liberal and most of the teachers were there specifically because they were like excited by some of the more like progressive teaching philosophies that were on display. And so with COVID, you had like this partisan fight that was break that was emerging about should schools be open or not. And private schools often out offered an outlet for conservative parents who wanted parents, kids to be in school earlier uh, and public schools were open later, but charter schools were caught back in this situation where it was like didn't quite fit on those partisan lines that that, that had mm-hmm. been drawn for the education reform debates of the previous decade and a half. Yeah, and then there were some pretty high profile uh, educator uh, firings there. Uh, the the principal left. It was just a it was pretty dark for a while. So this hopefully for them points to a brighter future. In other union news, the Deputy Sheriff's Association is the largest union of officers in San Diego County. Uh, they have made a change at their own leadership. Now, this has always been an odd political situation because the Republicans who decide on their benefits or used to decide on their benefits at the County Board of Supervisors level. Mm-hmm. So these are the sheriffs that work in cities that don't have their own police departments or in other areas of the county where there's uh, no city, right? So there's uh, these unincorporated areas. So these officers uh, are often uh, very conservative, but there's been uh, leadership at the County Board of Supervisors that for a long time was was Republican. And a lot of them didn't want to give them good benefits, right? They would cut back or ask for reform of their benefits going forward. And so they had this weird situation where they would often support the, for a while they supported Kristen Gaspar, who pushed to get rid of their, or lower their pension benefits. And then they later came around and endorsed Nathan Fletcher, a Democrat, who supported their benefits. But now they're they're not so happy about the liberal agenda. So what's going on there? Yeah, so they essentially chose new leadership, and not as is, has often been the case in uh, you know when a union has a, a democratic election among their members to change leadership. This was not at the end of a term. This was a a, a change in leadership preemptively um, that brought in a new group of people. And it wasn't, you know, sort of 
unfortunately, when they cast their votes, they don't list the reasons for ha- having done it that you can <laughs> draw a, a, a direct correlation from one thing to another. Um, but if you listen to to past surveys of their membership, some of their issues were with perceptions of of politics that were that break down on culture war lines around uh, the Democratic leadership at the county and things like the uh, requirements for uh, vaccination at the county that they had, yeah, so which were not that stringent really at all. Yeah, so David Leonardi and Eric Garcia were president and vice president. They've been replaced by Michael O'Dean and Timothy Richards. And yeah, there was pretty, they, they wanted different, something different. And it'll be interesting to see because will they emerge as more of a political force to try to, to, try to serve as that opposition to what the Board of Supervisors has been heading towards as, what are they most frustrated about though? Like uh, helping homeless people or? <laughs> well, I, I mean, what's, if you go back to like the, just the most recent election cycle, like they endorsed Nathan Fletcher and also Jim Desmond. Yeah. Right. So like you, you sort of have to ask like what what real change politically do they expect to make based on their support? Jim Desmond was a, a prohibitive favorite to win reelection as a conservative in inland North County area. And Nathan Fletcher as a much more liberal guy was a, a prohibitive favorite to win re-election in the urban core of San Diego. You could, if you wanted, you could endorse a Republican opponent to Nathan Fletcher if they're more aligned with your interests on policing or on COVID mandates. But is it going to sway the difference in winning or losing? And then what have you done for your relationship with the person who's going to set your your benefit standards, right? And same goes for Jim Desmond. You know, I mean, he's probably more aligned with some of the things that I think they 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 motivate them in the first place. But it's like if these races aren't going to be competitive, are you better set as a union in making a pragmatic choice or setting a hard line on your political beliefs? So it, it it's still striking to me how important the vaccine discussion became in all of these police union discussions right in san diego they they clearly still don't like the mayor uh the police don't care for the mayor in large part because of the um very strict covid vaccine mandate that he put in place the county very intentionally avoided that sort of mandate they asked for a testing requirement and they got it, but uh, it was, but even that was considered too much. Yeah, there should have been nothing. Should have been nothing. So they just did not like COVID being something that the county was worried about. Yeah, seems like it. <laughs> and this was and this is this is not this was not us like hypothesizing. They served a, put put they filled out a membership survey like a year ago that La Prensa published, and they listed these as like top concerns. For the last several years, we have been talking about how supposedly easy it was going to be to raise taxes in San Diego and across California now that groups could put a special tax on a ballot using signatures and not have to get two-thirds of the vote. We've always talked about for the, one of the key facts about why you couldn't build a stadium in San Diego for the Chargers was because unlike other cities across the country— 
you need a two-thirds vote for a special tax here. Uh, you can get a 50% plus one vote if you just give the government money. If you, But if you say it's going to go to uh, a new trolley line or it's going to go to uh, a new stadium or it's going to go to police or whatever, if you say specifically where the money is going to go, it has to have a higher threshold. Now, that seems backwards, right? Because if you're going to... If you're gonna just give the government money, it seems like it should be harder to just because give that's it. less accountability. Type right, it could be right. used for whatever. But right. if you're going to give it money for a specific purpose, then it can be held more accountable. Why would that have a higher threshold? Well, it's because they they were trying to stop taxes increases from being passed, so they mm-hmm. made it harder for the things that would be easier to pass. And so that was supposed to get changed by the Supreme Court's decision several years ago that you can pass taxes if you get a majority vote of the citizenry, that the part that says two-thirds doesn't impact or isn't inclusive of the citizens' initiatives. Citizens' initiatives just need 50% plus one to become law, and that includes taxes. That was what the Supreme Court decided, and there, there were then a bunch of efforts after that to do signatures to raise taxes, and they're all <laughs> struggling in San Diego. <laughs> Uh, All we, struggling in San Diego specifically. In yes. particular. So there's the only one right now that is surviving, and that is the the ongoing effort to prove that the 2020 measure to raise uh, taxes on tourists who come, on the hotel room tax, for an expansion of the convention center and homeless services and roads, that is still going through the courts because the city's saying it really did pass because it only got, it got more than... 60% of the vote, it didn't get two-thirds, but it was a citizen's initiative. Even though the, the city attorney said twice it needed two-thirds. On the ballot. On the ballot. <laughs> Which seems like it's a... It's still an interesting thing. Yeah, it seems like a bad coordination going on there. Yeah. Whatever. That's... <laughs> <laughs> no, I... It's, that's, that was the best. I, Whatever. I, do, I often like to try to think of easy ways I could explain things to people who don't pay close attention to politics and like, yeah, the city as a whole really wanted this to pass on the basis of what was allowed by the Supreme court. But the city attorney specifically said on the ballot that that was not the case has always been a hard one to explain. Yeah. Because she kind of just didn't believe that the, the, the court was going to rule as it did. Right. Just didn't say that. Okay, so that's going to take another 500 years to resolve in the courts. So in in the meantime, there was an effort to raise signatures to put a tax for San Diego, San Diego Association of Governments and the transportation and transit plan that it had. And they spent a lot of money, millions of dollars, and it did not make the ballot. Then there was this effort to uh, raise signatures to get a parcel tax on the ballot. So this would be a two cent fee for every square foot of land that you own in San Diego. And that would go to libraries and parks within the city of San Diego. Mm -hmm. And they also spent more than a million dollars and they turned in their signatures and they have found out what a lot of others have found out, which is that they are insufficiently... They don't have enough signatures. signatures. Now, they have some, like, recourses right in front of them. Yes. They can still, like, sort of 
try to work out with the registrar, but the official word from the registrar as published on their website is did not have enough signatures disqualified. Yeah, the city clerk, uh, the city clerk, city clerk put that out there. Say it's it's insufficient signatures. The registrar of voters is the one that does that validation process. So just quickly, what they do is they take all the signatures. There's 110,000 that were turned in. There's 80,000 that were required. A little more than 80,000 that were required to be valid. Uh, they they don't want to count all 80,000 to see. So they do a representative three percent sample. And if the sample has a, an error rate that's high enough, they can tell if, if the error rate will carry through. And then they say it's not high enough to do the full count. That's what they've done here. Now, there again, like you said, they're arguing there's a few ways that they could get a few more of those signatures validated and make the error rate lower and, and figure it out. But I think this is, um, this is a disappointing to a lot of people in the parks and libraries world, the, the kind of uh, upper echelon of people who were trying to help the parks and help the libraries and do more programming. But there was also a lot of things like pretty exciting things kind of on tap, like the in Skyline and City Heights mm -hmm. and in Linda Vista over the summer, they had been doing um, uh, parks after dark uh, engagement things. And they were really lively things where the kids were coming out, they're riding their bikes down to these, these parks that are at night, not the usually most attractive places they were engaged they were active these are the kinds of things they wanted to put on at those parks plus all the as i've talked about before you travel around the region there's just a incredible disparity in how good some parks are and how bad some of them are and they were going to try to add some of the investment on that and then the libraries of course for more programming and so all of that is probably lost in this and um except insofar as the city of San Diego is pursuing a large, much, much larger tax increase. Well, that's what I found out. I, I poked yeah. around at this at, at City Hall about, well, aren't you guys disappointed in this because you had all these plans, you've got these staffing and programming shortages at all these parks, you, you're not going to do that in there. They're like, well, it's, it's, it's good because Councilman Raul Campillo mm -hmm. and Mayor Todd Gloria are apparently working at City Hall right now to generate support for a full cent increase to the city's sales tax uh, to use for all kinds of needs, they don't, they won't identify yet what that is. They want to, uh, they want to figure that out. But also, they would put it on as a general tax increase on the ballot, so it would not be able to say what the money would go for. It would be just for the city of San Diego. But if they put a full cent sales tax increase on the ballot, that's about three hundred million dollars more per year going to the city and the city already pays for things like park and library improvements out of its general fund right and therefore could do that out of the general fund with this extra 300 million dollars per year yeah i couldn't get anybody to comment officially on what was going on um we'll keep trying to hunt that down but um the city of san diego has a 7.75 percent sales tax chula vista now is at 8.75 percent so mm -hmm. It'd get up there with them. Uh, El Cajon, I think, is at 8.25%. Uh, but the one, the first thing I thought of was Sandag. Yeah. Because they project not one, not two. LeBron James. Not one, not two. But three <laughs> sales tax mm -hmm. increases would pass countywide for their transportation plan within the next 
seven years Since by 2030 yeah. that's <laughs> that's so not real yeah i but, mean we're already like a few months past the first one that was supposed to be passed right so which didn't happen if the city jumped up a whole cent yeah it's stealing the the thunder yeah the, the cannibalizing capacity, capacity cannibalizing yeah. sure so that seems even less real now if that's something that's that the guy who's a big part of Sandeg, Todd Gloria, if he's if he wants the sa- the tax increase just for San Diego, mm-hmm. maybe he's not so on board with what Sandeg wants to do. Yeah, there's a whole body of elected officials called the Sandeg Board that like votes for the regional transportation plan that like officially says all of these tax increases that are going to be approved. And this is not just this most recent one, like going back year decades. I, I can't help but think that often people don't support all of those tax increases. Yeah. Like <laughs> the, the the amount of tax increases that are officially required to do all the things that people say they're going to do are not something that I think people actually on that board all support. Or maybe they didn't read it. <laughs> I think they just don't think it's real. So they just don't think it matters. It's like a model <laughs> UN thing. Yeah. I think it's like a model UN thing. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. This week, I got together with County Supervisor Tara Lawson-Reamer. In 2020, Lawson-Reamer ousted Republican Kristen Gaspar, which helped Democrats secure a majority on the Board of Supervisors. She serves District 3, which spans from Coronado to Carlsbad. Two years into her term, I decided to pull her in to talk about the biggest issues the county is facing— homelessness, behavioral health, the service worker shortage affecting those efforts, and a few of the new projects she's excited about. Here's our conversation. If you're a listener at the Voice of San Diego podcast, you know that we often talk about homelessness and how we've been covering it. And I mean, it really is like the top issue that people in this region are concerned about. It's, you know, even become to the point where people in, in my everyday life, people who are not very involved um, or, you know, into policy or what's going on with the city. It's the issue that's top of mind, right? It's the thing that's kind of getting them to pay attention and realizing that this crisis is just getting worse. What is the current state of the county's behavioral health options? I mean, there's a lot of things that are coming, but 
how would you, you know, describe to someone who just wants to understand, like, where are we at as a county with what we have to offer right now? Um, we have challenges. I mean, honestly, there the behavioral health what goes back to the workforce issue. Mm-hmm. Um, just an underinvestment in workforce for so long. We're on track um, right now to have about eighteen thousand too few behavioral health workers mm-hmm. by uh, twenty thirty. And so that's why we as a board are prioritizing investments in um, behavioral health workforce. We just set aside uh, $15 million um, to catalyze uh, new growth in uh, people who are becoming qualified to be behavioral health workers. Um, and a lot of these facilities that people need, you know, don't exist. The the, mo- the investment model, and you really can trace it back to, um, you know, the late 70s, um, which cut – cut spending on behavioral health or thought it cut spending, but it's more like it cut spending on preventative care. Mm-hmm. And then you just ended up with people in hospitals. And mm-hmm. um, so I would say we are moving, um, but we're on behavioral health and we're moving ex- like at lightning speed. Um, but the uh, challenge, the backlog that we inherited, the honestly, um, I would say started the year before I was born. Um, so I've inherited a problem that started in 1977. Um, we have we have a problem that's been 45 years in the making, mm-hmm. and um, it's just it's 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 one of the things that I think we're doing as a board that's so important is is tackling this. We obviously have a huge crisis on our hands, and one of the things the da- data has shown us that's really just you know so distressing is that we are. Get, getting folks off the streets. We're actually getting folks off the streets pretty successfully. Mm-hmm. But the number of people who are getting homeless is faster than the number of people who are getting off the streets. Right. So you, for every 10 people you get off the streets, 12 people will get homeless. Mm-hmm. So then it's just increasing, 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 increasing. Mm-hmm. So that tells me that one of the things, I mean, there's so much we can do. I mean, I think we could have three whole podcasts just on homelessness. <laughs> um, but that tells me what, that one of the things we need to do is do a better job of preventing people from getting becoming homeless in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been trying to look at innovative programs around diversion. Uh, we have a pilot program on a shallow rent subsidy for seniors mm-hmm. um, to give folks who are strongly at risk of becoming homeless a subsidy, a rent subsidy to be able to stay housed uh, because it costs much, much less money and is much, much better for everyone if someone can keep a roof over their heads rather than um, becoming homeless. Mm-hmm. Keep keep seniors off the streets because that's our fastest growing homeless population, our seniors. Um, about 25% of our homeless population is now um, seniors here in San Diego. And so you know, trying to figure out how we tackle that, the, the prevention piece. Uh, also looking at uh, what else can we do around diversion? So people who are um, not yet homeless, but they come and they, they've lost their house, but they still, you know, have a, a car. They're sort of in that mm-hmm. moment of crisis and they haven't quite settled. They haven't settled into being homeless yet. Right. They're like, oh no. Mm-hmm. And right now the backlogs and the, on the waiting lists are really long to kind of like get into housing and there's, you know, vouchers. It's just very, it's long, long processes and sort of having some more quick strategic intervention sort of right there. Like, at the door before they even get in the door, but like at the door to, to kind of get them into housing right away. Um, at the end of the day, you know, cities have to kind of figure out where you're going to have a shelter. You know, counties can't really do that. But what we can do is provide services mm-hmm. and provide wraparound services. And so we've been partnering with cities. Um, you know, we put out a $10 million grant challenge to all the cities saying, hey, if you guys find a site and a shelter, we'll, we'll match it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll put money in to have skin in the game. And then we're going to make sure that there's services and wraparound services. And I think we're seeing a lot of progress on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really kind of across San Diego County is just like step-by-step city saying, okay, we can do a hundred beds here, 50 beds there. Um, I'm definitely pretty happy to see some of the cities uh, beginning to step forward with more safe parking plans. Um, um, you know, some of these kind of innovative programs around safe camping uh, that I've heard uh, city council members beginning to speak on. And what we can do at the county is say, okay, well, you don't just have to have campsite. Like, we'll be there. We'll be with where with the live oil mobile. We'll be there making sure that people can get, um, you know, their vaccines, that can get access to health care, that can get, you know, sign up for CalFresh and CalWorks and, you know, figure out what their benefits are and can we even get them into job interviews and can we get them screened by a behavioral health specialist? Can we get them placed in an outpatient services uh, facility? So we're we're really looking at how to scale up our live well uh, mobiles mm-hmm. to be able to be present um, at these at the um, homeless shelters that the cities are think start like doing doing some work to try to get started. One of the things that I've been looking at is, you know, some of the the young people that end up on our street and like why. Mm-hmm. And we do know that um, there's a number of people who end up homeless because they get kicked out of their house uh, for for coming out um, as LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. And so we have a new program at the county for the first of its kind to have queer affirming um, homelessness services. Oh, wow. And because that's not that's never happened. And mm-hmm. so you had young people who just felt. They had nowhere to go, um, and they were kicked out of their house. And so that's another place that I'm pretty um, hopeful that we can begin to to see some progress. Mm-hmm. I'm curious at, at the the response to uh, mental health crisis. I know there are some efforts to, you know, not have police officers respond to those calls, um, as in having professionals who are maybe more equipped to to that. What's the county doing on that front? Yep. So we started a new program. Um, it was at the the under the previous board they had um, kind of begun to pilot a little a little program and then when we when you know Nora and I, Nora and I won in uh, twenty twenty and joined Nathan on the board um, we then launched this region wide to do um, a regional program on mobile crisis response essentially how it works is individuals who are trained in behavioral health crisis um, interventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, are assembled in a team with different kinds of competencies. So it's called a mobile crisis response team. And they're dispatched instead of armed law enforcement um, in instances where that's more appropriate, where people actually need help um, and don't need, you know, police with guns. And, uh, you know, we're, I think, there's definitely been a lot of early successes. Um, I'd like to see it expand and do more. But so far, the, this last year, 3,600 um, responses were, uh, to calls. Mm-hmm. And uh, over 1,000 of those were diverted from 911. So I think that's important for people to keep in mind as well, that it's not only that you <laughs> want to make sure that people get the help that they need and don't maybe get shot because mm-hmm. someone who doesn't understand what's going on uh, shows up and thinks it's a threat when they actually need a crisis or behavioral health specialist. Uh, but it also means that um, our armed law enforcement can actually um, stay focused on protecting public safety and responding to real threats instead of uh, you know spending 10, 12, 15 hours driving someone to central booking and walking them through it. And at the end of the day, you just take them back out again because that mm-hmm. was not the right place for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a big part of it. And I think of that as the 
that's the outward facing part of the response is the mobile crisis response teams. Um, I think about 20% of the people who have been um, served by an, a mobile crisis response, response team are uh, identif- self-identifies homeless. Mm-hmm. So we know that these teams are, are helping people in need on our streets and hopefully many often connecting them to some of the services that they need um, to begin to get off of our streets. So that's there's a really strong intersection there. The other part of this is our, you know, just going back to behavioral health, is the investments we're making in crisis stabilization units. Um, we've built six so far across mm-hmm. our county. What are those exactly? So these the crisis stabilization unit means that you go there and you actually get seen and treated and evaluated by a behavioral health specialist mm-hmm. instead of being taken to jail. I mean, just think about what you're – you have a person who's having a behavioral health crisis, and they previously they were getting taken to jail, mm-hmm. which was completely inappropriate. Got no help. They actually often got worse, mm-hmm. um, and then ended up back in the streets again. And so our, our CSUs are really focused at making sure that people, you know, can get stabilized. Um, it's also a place that people can go and get taken, or and or self check in. Also, like honestly, mm-hmm. often self check in. Uh, Way upstream before you might need to be in a psychiatric hospital or in, an, in one of the beds that, you know, at our at our facilities that are supposed to be for people who are really in acute crisis. And you touched on this earlier about, um, you know, it it's kind of on the cities to identify locations where, you know, they can open up a shelter, maybe safe camping, as there's been some discussions in the city of San Diego, um, safe parking lots as well. Um, and the county can offer those services that are crucial, right? You just you don't want to just open up a lot where people can park and exactly. not provide any services. Um, and I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at first there was some issue getting county or cities to apply for some of those grants and funding that the county was providing. I remember reading that. Um, it took a little bit longer than we had anticipated, but I think uh, to the city's credit, they, they were just trying to do their due diligence to make sure that once they applied that they actually would be able to build. Um, because just to call a spade a spade and be really honest, I mean, we all know that this is a crisis facing our community, but nobody wants a solution in their backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the city, like a lot of our representatives had real work to do to make sure that when they found sites that they that the community would be supportive. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get into care court. Mm-hmm. Um I'm curious where that's at and if you could kind of explain what Care Court is. <laughs> sure. Um, so Care Court is a pilot program, I think is the best way to describe it, mm-hmm. approved by the legislature uh, last um, a cycle, uh, championed by the governor. And San Diego has volunteered to be one of the first counties to, to try it out to see if we mm-hmm. can figure out how to make it work. And um, basically – what it does is it creates specialty courts um, where if there is an individual who um, is suffering and dealing with like a behavioral health crisis in particular, ongoing, it could be chronic, it doesn't have to be acute, mm-hmm. um, but they're not willing to um, voluntarily seek care, um, someone else can um, put a petition into the court and ask that they be evaluated this the, the individual be evaluated um, for treatment. Mm-hmm. And then they go in front of the court and they have an advocate. Basically, they get an evaluation by the county um, behavioral health team try to assess 
and try to better understand what's going on. Um, they also get a, um, a public defender just to make sure that their own rights are um, being protected and <clears throat> go to the court. And the idea is for them to come up with a treatment plan that they weren't willing to seek themselves. And then they will have to adhere to that treatment plan. And the hope is it's a year, it's less than a year. That's mm -hmm. the idea. Um, and then they would come back to the court. And if they had fulfilled the conditions of their treatment plan and it seemed that they are going in a, in a state, in a place that they're going to continue to adhere to those conditions, mm -hmm. um, then they would be released from the supervision of the court. So, if, for example, they uh, were successfully taking their medication that had been prescribed um, then and the court decided that they were going to continue taking that medication, then they would have been deemed to have graduated. Mm -hmm. uh, but if they don't, or if it's not going well, then they sort of go back into that cycle again and continue to get treatment. You know, I, I personally have two friends mm -hmm. who have very close family members who um, have severe, severe um, behavioral health challenges and are refusing to get treatment. Mm -hmm. And this would uh, create an avenue to allow that treatment to, to happen. That being said, I think there's a lot of challenges, right? Like I think we have to be really clear that this is not, you know, it's going to be like a magical solution or something to our homelessness problem, like at all. You know, mm -hmm. I most, I, I don't even know numerically if it's going to make the dent that people think. So mm -hmm. do you think we have some like expectation management to do on mm -hmm. um, it being, you know, really helpful in a lot of ways, but um, not probably not going to have the, the, <laughs> the big dramatic impact that I think people might um, hope. Um, and also we have to be careful that it's not abused, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, there's obviously like a history um, in this country, um, but, you know, frankly, like in many countries of um, women who uh, their husbands didn't like what they were doing, mm -hmm. involuntarily committing them to uh, psychiatric institutions, uh, you know, other ways in which involuntary commitment has been, like, abused to get elderly people sort of out of the way and mm -hmm. uh, take their, you know, their finance, take over their finances. I mean, you could just see all the, I mean, historically, it's not an imaginary thing, historically, and it's particularly, it has been um, levied against women um, by husbands who were, you know, mm -hmm. you know, this is the, you know, this was the common thing of, a husband wanted had a mistress. They're like lock mm -hmm. one lock away their wife, and in the eighteen hundreds. So like, let's we're not going back, right? So right. we just have to be careful that we're we're really protecting people's dignity um, and civil liberties, um, as we also really try to get them the help, um, the the health care that they need. Mm -hmm. Do you know what capacity is available, or I don't know how that's determined. This is such a good question. It's actually a meeting I had last week to try to suss this out. We don't know because mm -hmm. we don't know how many people are going to be referred. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to have capacity to process however many people are referred. Mm -hmm. um, but we have no idea how mm -hmm. many people are going to be referred. And, of course, there's going to be a review process, right? So if there's a referral – and there's no evidentiary basis that a person has any behavioral health uh, issues, right? And it's just some random person. Like, that's not going to the judge. I mean, mm -hmm. come on. So that's just harassment. Mm -hmm. um, so we are clearly going to have a process. But um, our goal is certainly to be able to meet the, the demand. And we have no idea what that's going to look like. Yeah. So right. implementation is extremely difficult. I mean, very honestly, it's going to be really hard. Like, we, we're trying to build a system that we don't have any clue how many users there's going to be. Mm-hmm. It's scary. 
Well, I mean, it's an opportunity. You know, I think it's oh, it's good to have another tool in the toolbox. But I, I think people are just so con- concerned about homelessness for all the right reasons. You know, mm-hmm. it's a really uh, huge challenge that we need to be tackling uh, with everything that we can. Um, and but unfortunately, it's so easy to want to look for a magic bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of like trying to you know, solve like education, you know, to solve mm-hmm. education, <laughs> right? There's not, you know, you don't like uh, pass, uh, you know, some new curriculum mm-hmm. and then we've solved education, right? Like all of these really intractable problems are hard and mm-hmm. co- require us to kind of unpack what the root drivers and how do we get at all of these root drivers and be really evidence-based um, and and look at what works and doesn't work. And when something's not working, get rid of that program and reallocate money to the successful programs. Like you just got to be iterating and improving all the time. You're not going to, it's not, you know, no silver bullets. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to speak to that I didn't ask you? I think I'm really excited um, about some really nerdy stuff we're doing. Okay. And so one of those things. I want love it. Lo- well, I love it. So I think big picture for me, what's important is that we are learning from setbacks and scaling up successes that we're not doubling and tripling down on rhetoric and saying, you know, we passed a program, it's working great. Like, no, if something doesn't work, let's get rid of it and Mm -hmm. let's do something better. Uh, But you can only really um, make government more impactful and effective if we actually evaluate our programming Mm -hmm. and which we never had been doing, Mm -hmm. um, which is crazy because we have a $7.3 billion budget and no uh, office that of evaluation. So we now have an office of evaluation and performance analysis, and we are have a strategic plan that we're in the process of putting together of all the programs that are going to be evaluated. It clearly can't be all $7.3 billion of them. Mm-hmm. Um, partnering with a lot of local universities and academics to conduct some of these studies, um, partnering with community partners to, to evaluate programs. So this is, a, I think, a longer-term investment on good governance mm-hmm. in San Diego County. It's not going to be sexy. It's not going to come back this year or next year, but maybe when I'm gone, then, uh, you know, five, 10 years from now, someone <laughs> that will have, but it, it's important, right? I mean, we're talking about the future of our community and making sure that these resources are being used wisely. Mm-hmm. And um, so some of the programs that I mentioned today, as well as some others, like the senior shallow rent subsidy, we mm-hmm. also have um, a, a basic income program for families um, at risk of of uh, children being put into the foster care system. Um, so we have a couple other programs that we're uh, moving forward that we're doing um, really robust um, studies on whether they work and don't work. And that's mm-hmm. super exciting for me because it's just a total mind shift in how we even think about what we're doing mm-hmm. that we're to really want it to actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my nerdy thing. And I think all my, uh, <laughs> all my academic friends from back when I was a professor think this is a pretty great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego that celebrates its 18th anniversary this week. You can support our 18 years of work and invest in our future by donating at bosd.org slash podpeople. The link is in the show notes. I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania, Managing Editor at Voice of San Diego. Scott Lewis is CEO and Editor-in-Chief. Andrew Keats is Managing Editor. Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.